This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A warning. This episode features discussions of hatred and homophobia, including direct quotes that highlight the obstacles faced by patients and medical researchers during the AIDS crisis. Extreme caution is advised, especially for listeners under 13. The epidemic was rampant in San Francisco. There was no vaccine, no cure. Scientists weren't even sure how it spread. Amidst this panic, Dr. Selma Dritz was desperate to track down patient zero. She recalled, it was the whodunit of the century, and I was born nosy. Dr. Dritz was 63 and head of the infectious diseases at her branch of the CDC. If she could contain patient zero, it would make her career, and more importantly, save a few thousand lives. Based on the CDC's research, patient zero had infected somewhere around 750 people between 1979 and 1981. Those people had gone on to infect others who infected even more. Dr. Dritz believed the only way to stop the spread was to cut it off at the root. She confronted patient zero. We've got proof that you've been infecting these other people. We know it's transmissible now, because you're transmitting it. You've just got to cut it out. Patient Zero brushed her off. He replied, Don't be silly. I won't cut it out. It's my life. I'll do what I want. I got it. Let them get it. She urged him to take precautions to quarantine himself. He told her effectively, Screw you. In many ways, Patient Zero became public enemy number one. Journalist Randy Schiltz called him the Quebecois version of Typhoid Mary. The New York Post dubbed him the man who gave us AIDS. While these conclusions weren't true and Patient Zero was unfairly scapegoated, the rumors and panic spread more quickly than AIDS itself. Someone out there had a deadly, incurable illness. And if you weren't careful, they would give it to you, too. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. 
But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the HIV and AIDS epidemic. This week, we'll explore the epidemic through 1985, taking a look at what it is, who it affected, and how it appeared seemingly overnight. Next week, we'll explore the spread of the epidemic and why doctors and politicians just couldn't get it right. Dr. James W. Curran would have done almost anything to avoid serving in the Vietnam War. He tried to get work at the Family Planning Service, which would have allowed him to defer the draft, but he didn't get the job, despite his OBGYN training. Many people in his position would have given up, surrendering to months cutting through dense jungle or spraying Agent Orange from the skies. Dr. Curran was nearly there himself, staring down the barrel of Air Force conscription when a colleague mentioned the CDC. They had openings in the family planning unit, and work there qualified for military service deferral. He'd be studying gonorrhea, but a job in the U.S. was a job in the U.S. And surprisingly, the draft-dodging career move was good for him. Dr. Curran excelled and was soon selected for a career development program that placed him at Harvard School of Public Health. When he finished those studies in 1975, he went to work in the STD Control Division in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Curran worked in various roles throughout the next three years and was promoted to the chief of the research branch of the division in 1978. In the following few years, the CDC began its reorganization efforts from one singular Center for Disease Control to the Centers for Disease Control. However, this came at a rather inopportune time. In 1981, Ronald Reagan was elected President of the United States. He was a strong proponent of fiscal conservatism and was looking to cut the federal budget. These cuts hit the CDC hard, and it left all of the centers vying for the same limited budget. Reagan was also a moral majority ally, a group of religious activists who pushed for conservative measures like school prayer, pro-life choices, and the continued ban of same-sex marriage. These religious activist groups were pushing back against what they viewed as a progressive wave after the Stonewall riots in 1969 and the March on Washington for lesbian and gay rights in 1979. Homophobia was a major force in America. And in 1981, Dr. Curran learned of a strange phenomenon that would take the issue front and center. 
That May, Curran received an early draft of the June Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the CDC's weekly publication of current medical news. The edition Curran had in his hands detailed a strange occurrence among young, previously healthy men in Los Angeles, California. Between October 1980 and May 1981, five men between the ages of 29 and 36 began showing signs of peculiar diseases and fungal infections. One man in particular experienced headaches for a two-month period, while another man had even worse. He had them for five whole months. All five men were diagnosed with pneumocystis pneumonia, or PCP, a rare and serious fungal infection that weakens the immune system. Through basic interviews, their doctors surprisingly found no personal connections and no mutual contacts. The patients stayed in different hospitals at different times. Looking at it as an STD expert, Dr. Curran noted that the patients had no history of sleeping with the same partners or knowledge that their past partners were diagnosed with any similar diseases though the report did note that all five patients were openly gay. The odd scenario gave Curran cause for alarm. By the time the CDC published the final report a month later, two of the men had already died. Soon after, Curran and his team began receiving more information about diagnoses of PCP in men around the country. The CDC anticipated a growing problem, and they established the Task Force on Kaposi's Sarcoma and Opportunistic Infections on June 8, 1981. Curran was elected the chair of the committee for the three-month assignment. Around the same time, hundreds of miles away, Dr. Arye Rubinstein, a pediatric immunologist in New York, noted his own odd outbreak. Five infants showed signs of immunosuppression and PCP. Dr. Rubenstein discovered most of their mothers were sex workers who also used intravenous drugs. Dr. Rubenstein was convinced these patients suffered the same epidemic as the men Curran was studying. But Rubenstein's colleagues saw no relevance or connection. Why would infants in New York have anything to do with gay men in San Francisco? They dismissed his findings, citing a lack of scientific evidence. So for the time being, Dr. Rubenstein let it go. In July, the CDC released another report detailing an unusual cluster of diagnoses. 26 young gay men, this time throughout California and New York, were experiencing something truly bizarre. They had blue and purple skin lesions, swollen lymph nodes, and tumors throughout their bodies. All 26 of these men were diagnosed with Kaposi's sarcoma. Four of them already had a confirmed diagnosis of PCP in addition to the sarcoma. Dr. Curran realized that if you compared PCP diagnoses with Kaposi's sarcoma diagnoses, they almost always mirrored each other in demographics and geographic locations. There must have been some sort of connection among all of these cases. If he could find it, he could stop it from spreading. But it had already spread far enough to cause concern. People outside of the medical community were beginning to take notice. 
On July 3, 1981, the New York Times published an article titled Rare Cancers Seen in 41 Homosexuals. The article speculated on possible causes for the strange cluster of Kaposi's sarcoma, but it didn't provide a reason why only gay men were affected. However, it did cite Dr. Curran as a source, saying that straight individuals weren't at risk. The article stated that Kaposi's sarcoma was incredibly rare in the United States, the likelihood of such a malignancy being just two out of every three million people. So the outbreak couldn't be a coincidence. The CDC went on high alert. What they'd seen of Kaposi's sarcoma so far was on track with prior dangerous epidemics like Legionnaire's disease in 1976 and toxic shock syndrome in 1980. If they didn't act fast, hundreds more people could die. Despite the urgency, Dr. Curran only had a small amount of information on Kaposi's sarcoma and very limited funding. So he decided to start close to home. Along with his team at the CDC, Curran began analyzing reports of requests for pentamidine isothionate, the drug prescribed when a patient was diagnosed with PCP. Because PCP was such an incredibly rare occurrence, doctors had to request the drug through the CDC directly, which made it easy for Curran to access the information. Coincidentally, Dr. Peter Walzer, a professor at the University of Cincinnati, had recently published a paper on pentamidine isothionate requests between 1969 and 1978. His paper concluded that there were no unexplained cases of PCP for those nine years. Each had been diagnosed with a specific cause. Curran was able to pick up where the paper trail left off, finding a few more previously diagnosed cases that were present in New York, California, and Atlanta. These were mostly one-off cases that didn't appear in clusters and were ultimately overlooked. Curran found that the majority of diagnosed patients were openly gay men, with few unexplained cases among straight men in New York. Curran and the CDC interviewed over 90% of the living people who'd been prescribed pentamidine isothionate. From the interviews, they concluded that this outbreak was occurring among openly gay men. This was unusual for the STD control division, which typically saw more cases of disease among closeted men. At this point, Curran and his team had two working theories as to why this outbreak was occurring only among gay men. Number one, if it was passed sexually, gay men were more likely to have multiple partners as evidenced in patient interviews. And number two, poppers, drugs made of amyl nitrate to enhance sexual pleasure, were used almost exclusively by gay men, and the drug use could have been a factor. Of course, they couldn't be sure of either. Concern in the gay community was growing, but because of homophobia, the epidemic wasn't getting appropriate resources. The already underfunded CDC could only do so much. So on August 11, 1981, a group of 80 men in New York City raised $6,635 of their own funds to put towards research. This was the only money raised for Kaposi's sarcoma in 1981. 
that September, Bobby Campbell and his partner, Bobby Hilliard, began a honeymoon trip driving down the coast of California. Bobby was a graduate student at the University of California at San Francisco, studying to become, in his own words, a gay health nurse practitioner. But today was a break from his studies. The couple enjoyed the beautiful sights of Monterey, Big Sur, San Simeon, and finally the Pinnacles National Monument before returning home later that evening. When Bobby Campbell removed his hiking boots, he found several purple spots on his feet. Like most hikers would, Bobby assumed these spots were simply blood blisters. They didn't hurt, and he figured they'd clear up in a few days. But three weeks later, those purple spots were still there. Bobby's partner told him there had been an uptick in Kaposi's sarcoma diagnoses among gay men. He said it usually started at the feet. Bobby remained hopeful that they were, in fact, just blood blisters. But given his partner's concern, he visited a doctor at UC San Francisco. The doctor had never seen Kaposi's sarcoma for herself, so she referred Bobby to dermatologist Dr. Marcus A. Conant. Dr. Conant biopsied Bobby's skin lesions. Not long after that, Bobby's worst fears were confirmed. It was Kaposi's sarcoma. Despite the fact that the CDC had been studying the outbreak for over a year, there was no cure in sight, and the federal government was completely ignoring the danger at hand. Up next, we'll explore the lack of government intervention during an increasingly alarming crisis. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After an unexplained outbreak of previously rare diseases, Kaposi's sarcoma and PCP in 1981, Dr. James W. Curran, chair of the CDC's Task Force on Kaposi's Sarcoma and Opportunistic Infections, suspected a looming epidemic. As 1982 approached, more and more patients found themselves in the same position as Bobby Campbell. After his Kaposi's sarcoma diagnoses, Bobby went through the five phases of loss, denial of his diagnosis, and then anger at most people close to him. Third came bargaining, splitting his time between cancer treatments, going to school, and working full-time. If he kept up with his old life, how sick could he really be? This struggle gave way to depression, where he found himself abusing alcohol. As he moved closer and closer to the final phase, acceptance, Bobby realized that in order to help himself, he had to help others in his same position. That meant going public. On December 19, 1981, Bobby was the first man to come out as a victim of Kaposi's sarcoma when he published a column in the San Francisco Sentinel. His front page story was titled, I Will Survive, 
nurse's own gay cancer story. In it, he called himself the KS Poster Boy and talked about the early stages of starting a support group for other men affected by PCP or Kaposi's sarcoma. Bobby's second front-page article was published a few weeks later on January 7, 1982. In it, he said, The people I have to watch out for are those who could be in the same situation I am, but refuse to recognize that. He hoped opening up regarding his own struggles with his diagnosis would encourage more men to seek treatment. He equated coming to terms with his cancer diagnosis to coming to terms with his sexuality over 10 years prior. Around the same time, the New England Journal of Medicine reported the first occurrence of a similar epidemic among intravenous drug users. Of the 13 men studied, six were gay, seven used drugs, while two of these 13 fell into both categories. Researchers began to consider that drug users were also at risk. Curran and the CDC knew early on that PCP and Kaposi's sarcoma were somehow linked, but they still didn't know where they came from and how they were spreading. All they knew was that there were more victims. Over the course of the next few months, the CDC released multiple reports describing various groups of people that they thought to be at risk. In July of 1982, they released a report detailing 34 cases of Kaposi's sarcoma, PCP, and other opportunistic infections among Haitian immigrants. And this wasn't just in New York City or California. It was spread over five states. Scientists began speculating that the virus began in Haiti, and with a similar phenomenon occurring across a belt in Africa, they proposed that the virus traveled across the Atlantic from Africa to Haiti, and then from Haiti to California. They were coming to grips with this new theory when another Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report was published, including articles on PCP. This study added another whole new group of people at risk, those with hemophilia A. Hemophilia is a genetic disorder that leads to a lack of blood proteins, so the patient's blood doesn't clot properly when a vein or artery breaks. Because hemophiliacs are at such a high risk for blood loss, they require frequent blood transfusions. According to the report, Three hemophilia A patients began experiencing similar immunodeficiencies. By the time the report was published, two of the men had died and the third was in critical condition. This brought the final piece to the puzzle in what the CDC would loosely refer to as the 4-H group. They suggested that those at risk included homosexual men, heroin and other intravenous drug users, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. Throughout 1982, Curran worked alongside Dr. David Auerbach, a newer member of the CDC. They followed up on reports that these diseases and infections could be linked through sexual activity. With his history of studying sexually transmitted diseases, Curran felt he could take the upper hand against the epidemic. They started by analyzing the cluster of cases in California. 
of the first 19 patients diagnosed with PCP, Kaposi sarcoma, and similar immunodeficiency diseases in Southern California, only eight were still alive. Dr. Curran and Dr. Auerbach began a series of personal interviews with these eight men and conversations with those close to the deceased patients. Curran and Auerbach were able to trace the sexual history of 13 of those men. Their suspicions were confirmed. Four of these patients had past sexual encounters with each other, and nine of them had shared a partner with another patient. In order to keep track of this tangled web, the doctors labeled the men by locations. Patients living in Los Angeles were labeled as LA1, LA2, and so on. Then, they tried to figure out who had gotten sick first and traced the spread through shared partners. Curran and Auerbach had initially limited their research to Southern California, but many patients named a handsome blonde airline steward in their sexual history. He frequented bathhouses and bars in San Francisco, but no one could remember his name. Auerbach and Curran labeled this man as Patient O, meaning out of California. Following this lead, their research expanded to include past sexual partners of patients in other regions of the country, particularly New York. A handsome blonde flight attendant was among that group, too. But again, no one knew his name. Until one unique interview where a man pulled out his appointment book to reference his past sexual partners. In the book, one Gaetan Dugas, flight attendant. The doctors were sure Dugas was patient O, and he may have been single-handedly spreading disease through North America. As most flight attendants do, Dugas used his travel vouchers to visit different cities. But in each city, he stopped by a bathhouse, a known meeting spot for gay encounters in the 80s. With a name, the doctors quickly tracked this man down. Dugas met with Curran and the CDC, and he claimed to have had 750 sexual partners in just two years. But of those supposed 750, he was only able to name 72. Eight were men Dr. Curran and Dr. Auerbach had already studied. 64 were potentially at risk, and the doctors were eager to warn them. So they published their findings, hoping more patients might come forward with a connection to patient O. Whether they were healthy or sick, any information could help confirm or debunk their hypothesis. But when news outlets began reporting on this research, they named Dugas patient zero, a misinterpretation of patient O. That's how the popular term patient zero entered the pandemic lexicon. Armed with their latest findings, the CDC created a new umbrella term for the epidemic they'd been studying, AIDS, or Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. The CDC hoped it would raise awareness of the severity of the epidemic, but this hope was for naught. On October 15, 1982, at a White House press briefing, Journalist Lester Kinsolving asked the White House Press Secretary Larry Speaks the first public question about the AIDS epidemic. Kinsolving said, Larry, 
does the president have any reaction to the announcement by the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in over 600 cases? It's known as gay plague. Kinsolving's question was met with laughter from the press pool and from Speaks himself. Kinsolving remained resolved. He said, it's a pretty serious thing. One in every three people that gets this have died. And I wonder if the president was aware of this. The president was not aware of it. And Larry Speaks responded with more laughter. He said, I don't have it, do you? When government officials at the highest level refused to take AIDS seriously, the CDC found their hands tied. Without Washington's help, it would be virtually impossible to stop AIDS from spreading out of control. Up next, the AIDS crisis rises to a boiling point. Now back to the story. At the end of 1982, the CDC reported over 20 new cases of AIDS found in infants, and that was only in a single week. The infants didn't immediately fit into the 4-H group the CDC had narrowed the epidemic to. They weren't gay men, Haitians, intravenous drug users, or hemophiliacs. But like many hemophiliacs, the infants had been given blood transfusions. It couldn't be clearer for the CDC. AIDS spread by bodily fluids, and the disease had somehow gotten into the donor blood supply. And while there was a donor registry Dr. Curran and Dr. Auerbach could trace, it wasn't so easy. One infant who was born prematurely received blood from 19 different donors. At this point, there were less than 900 diagnosed cases of AIDS in the United States, a relatively small number when the national population reached over 230 million people. But among recent additions to the list was one of the premature baby's blood donors. He hadn't known he was sick when he donated. As rumors flew about contaminated blood, the government finally allocated funding to fight AIDS. $8 million total by late 1982. Now, Dr. Curran's CDC team could work more effectively, but it still wouldn't be easy. On January 4th, Dr. James W. Curran helped lead a public meeting between the CDC and the blood banks. Curran knew the blood was contaminated, but there was nothing that he or the CDC could do to stop further donations or transfusions without the help of the blood banks. The CDC proposed a questionnaire that would assist in identifying if a blood donor was at a higher risk for being infected with AIDS. It asked questions regarding their personal and sexual history to try to figure out if they fit into one of the four categories of risk. But the blood banks and their organizations did not see a need to worry the public about the nation's supply. They also felt it was inappropriate to be put in a position to even ask those questions of donors. What if they got offended and decided not to donate after all? There were some exceptions, but for the most part, blood banks didn't believe in the CDC's hypothesis that AIDS spread through blood. Why worry the public, prevent people from donating blood, and scare people away from life-saving transfusions when only a few people might be at risk? 
A consensus wasn't reached between the CDC and the blood banks until March 1983. In the meantime, more unwitting AIDS victims donated blood, still painfully unaware they were sick or spreading an incurable illness. And when that consensus was reached, it didn't protect everyone. The report came from the CDC, the Food and Drug Administration, and the National Institute of Health. It advised against donating blood if you identified as part of a group of people at higher risk, such as the 4-H group. The report also advised against further sexual contact for people diagnosed with AIDS. But people who didn't fall squarely within the 4-H group didn't feel they were at risk. That included women who had regular sexual contact with men who used intravenous drugs and women who had encounters with bisexual men. However, these groups of women were showing signs of AIDS. For the first time, evidence suggested that heterosexual sex was a risk too. And when children began showing signs of AIDS, misinformation plagued the public and fear only continued to spread. Curran's investigation was two years in, and it still wasn't clear who it affected, how it was contracted, or where it all began. The public feared AIDS could be passed on by physical touch, saliva, or simply by being in the same room as someone diagnosed. While there technically was only a small number of cases, as the numbers grew, the likelihood that more would be infected was growing exponentially, and the world was worried. France, for example, banned the importation of American blood for transfusions. Similar measures followed in Britain and the Netherlands. Before long, 103 cases were reported among 16 countries outside of the U.S. And then, in May of 1983, there was a breakthrough. At Paris's Institut Pasteur, Dr. Francois Barré-Sinoussi began examining patients experiencing AIDS symptoms. She discovered a retrovirus, a type of virus that inserts itself into the DNA and changes the genome. It seemed to be the cause of swollen lymph glands in some of her patients. The retrovirus, then known by its French abbreviation, LAV, was confirmed to be the cause of AIDS. It was further proved the following year when scientists in the United States isolated the same strand but called it HTLV3. The two were proven to be the same virus. With this new discovery, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services claimed that a vaccine could be developed and available within two years. This seemed like a ray of hope to all of those who were living in fear. But once again, the federal government didn't seem to be taking things seriously, destroying morale and undermining the severity of the situation. On June 13, 1983, at another White House press briefing, Press Secretary Larry Speaks offered more jokes about the growing AIDS epidemic. Thousands of AIDS cases had been reported in the U.S. alone, but before offering any sort of solution, Speaks poked fun at reporter Lester Kinsolving. However, Speaks eventually explained that the president had been briefed on the AIDS epidemic. 
Speaks announced that the White House was working to reprogram at least $8 million more million for AIDS research, but never promised a vaccine. Even with the new funds, it wasn't until September 1983 that Curran and the CDC identified all of the primary ways that AIDS could be acquired through contact with the patient's blood, contaminated needles, and sexual fluids. This report finally ruled out the erroneous beliefs that AIDS could be acquired through food, water, air, or sitting on an infected toilet. Following this report, Amsterdam set up the first needle exchange program in the world. They provided sterile needles and syringes. However, in light of the First Lady Nancy Reagan's just-say-no drug policy, the practice wasn't adopted in the United States. Even with all of the evidence presented by Dr. Curran and the CDC, misinformation still plagued society due in large part to fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of being outcast from society, and fear of death. Patient O, Gaetan Dugas, died on March 30th, 1984. The following August, AIDS activist Bobby Campbell passed away. By the end of the year, the number of total AIDS cases in the U.S. grew to 3,064. Three years into the outbreak, it had a horrifying 42% mortality rate. And despite the promises of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, a vaccine wasn't even close to being discovered. And the media's fear-mongering spiked as well. On October 9, 1984, the New York Times published an article titled AIDS Studies Hint Saliva May Transmit Infection. The article claimed that AIDS could be acquired through the exchange of saliva. However, the sources used were suspect, and a lot of the evidence came from various incomplete studies. The piece acknowledged that none of the 6,000 reported cases showed any evidence of this, but it only further contributed to the panic. In a painful blow to the gay community, 14 of San Francisco's bathhouses were ordered to close on October 10, 1984. Los Angeles and New York followed closely behind with similar edicts. Many supported the decision, finding it an obvious next step, but others felt that it was only further spreading discrimination, especially since President Reagan's administration mainly acknowledged the epidemic in the form of homophobic jokes. The president himself had yet to even mention the crisis publicly. On December 11, 1984, at a White House press briefing, Lester Kinsolving asked Larry Speaks if the president was concerned about the growing AIDS epidemic. Larry Speaks said, I haven't heard him express concern. Reportedly, at that point, there had been over 4,000 AIDS-related deaths in the United States alone. Despite the work of the CDC and other groups under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the promised vaccine was nowhere in sight. The country was scared. For thousands, time was running out, and they were in desperate need of answers. And the nation's leader had yet to even publicly express concern.
Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, we'll continue following Dr. Curran and the CDC and the race to end the AIDS epidemic. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.